Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and Chief Strategy Officer, Libby Rodney. Libby, what's going on? Hey, John, how you doing? It's, it's finally like a nice spring, almost summer day. It feels great being in New York. It's going to be hot in New York City. That's the way I like it. <laughs> there it is. And we're so excited to have back, um, we call her our special guest, but she's our recurring special guest because she's so smart. Abby Lunny. Abby, what's up? Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I, too, am a fan of warm weather, so ready for summer. That's that Austin <laughs> girl in you. Um, well, great. Let's jump into it. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. We're actually in our wave 116, if you guys can believe it, 116 straight weeks where we started this uh, weekly polling survey, and it's obviously broadened since the advent of COVID to cover a, a range of different things. And so a couple of things we're going to talk about um, this morning is clearly uh, Elon Musk continues to make news on whether he will or won't buy Twitter. But um, inside that, we've got a story on uh, his announcement that he would reinstate uh, former President uh, Donald Trump onto Twitter. So we want to get Americans sense of that. And then, guys, tell us a little bit about this new uh, Harris Poll survey on the future of ambition. Yeah, so we released um, an exclusive report about the future of ambition. And basically, the net net is, you know, Americans aren't lazy. They're not resigning just because of laziness. <laughs> they have a fundamentally reshifted their focus around what is driving their personal ambition, motivators, and how do they even um, define optimism in their life. So we'll kind of... Hmm. Uh, tackle that story um, in the in the middle of of this conversation today. Awesome, and then we'll finish it up on a, a really interesting new survey that Harris has just done with uh, Edward Jones and Age Wave, which sort of looks at this idea. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember, not your father's Oldsmobile. That was an old tagline from the seventies, <laughs> but this is not your parents' retirement. It's real interesting attitudes about uh, boomers and Gen X on how they're thinking about retirement. So we'll finish off with that, but let's get in and talk about um, three stats of the week. Uh, the first number is 68. I feel a little bit Libby, like uh, the count from Sesame Street, 68. 68% <laughs> um, of Americans believe that the worst of COVID is behind us. And that is up uh, one point. So there is creeping optimism. We're still not at 72%, which was our high watermark back at the reopening sort of early last uh, summer. But there's some other things in here that are, that are sort of interesting. Uh, the number 90 which is the continuing anxiety over the economy, inflation, and jobs. That's really significant. And that's up three points from last week. So you have 90% of Americans are focused exclusively on that being the number one issue in America and to no surprise. But also there's the finally the number 84. And this one is terribly tragic and sad, but there's a, a continuing uh, concern about random acts of violence across America at 84%. And that is up two points, uh, perhaps uh, related to the, the tragic events in, in Buffalo and the California church shooting, et cetera. Um, there is continuing concern about Ukraine. Also, it's still a concern of eight out of 10 Americans, and that's up two points as well. So a lot is going on there. But, you know, Libby, we've talked a little bit about stacked crises, but I think uh, we learned also that there's monkeypox. <laughs> what what the is heck? monkeypox? 
<laughs> monkeypox is like the the new thing to be worried about. It it started in oh my gosh uh, over in the UK, and there was a case in in Massachusetts, and so you know what, we will endeavor to survey monkeypox this weekend and come back to you guys next week about oh not monkeypox. I don't think I can handle this, John. I give up. <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> Just one more thing. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, our first story uh, about Elon Musk. So clearly, you know, his official purchase of, of Twitter still hangs in limbo over these debates over how many phantom bots are, are on the site. Um, but he did make significant news about saying that he would uh, reinstate former President Trump's Twitter account. That's not to say whether or not uh, the former president will take back to Twitter. But that definitely got some polling going uh, for us to really understand the debate. And I think one of the things that was interesting is when we went into um, the data and asked the question, do you support or oppose overturning uh, the former president's ban on Twitter? Among the general population of all Americans, uh, 55% uh, support it and 45% oppose it. So uh, a slight majority is in support of that. And when you look at who are the supporters, they tend to be strongly Republican at 88%, strong, more male at 60%, and interestingly too, uh, more millennial at 64%. And so this sort of um, portrait that we're going to paint here briefly about millennial Republican men are sort of really driving, uh, driving this discussion. But when you look on the other side of those who really uh, oppose this, you're talking Democrats at 67%, Black Americans at 58%, and women are, are there right at the, in the middle at 50%. So there was some sort of interesting differences um, in this. But what gets, I think, kind of uh, real interesting is when you go a little bit deeper and you look at, at the numbers and you start to understand among the opposition you know, 67% actually believe that any account, even public officials, should be banned if they're spreading misinformation. But what's interesting, too, though, is when you kind of get deeper into this discussion on free speech, because of those who actually supported uh, Trump's reinstatement, seven out of 10 claim that he should be allowed back due to freedom of speech. And almost four in 10 believe that banning politicians creates a dangerous precedent. So Libby, I mean, there seems to be a, a skew toward, a uh, slight skew anyway, toward free speech uh, on this issue. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So uh, a majority of the public says, you know, misinformation should be banned, right? That That's what mm -hmm. they agree with. And then they say at the same time for Trump, he should be allowed back for freedom of speech. Um, so I think I think it goes inherently to to kind of the quintessential problem of our time around what is truth. We have a very, very hard time understanding what is misinformation. There's just so many, much mis misinformation campaigns. Mm. And, you know, social media platforms, whether it be Meta or Twitter, they kind of keep stepping back and saying, oh, we're just the platform. Um, and then drawing lines like Twitter did draw this line by making this ban. So it's like, you know, I think Elon Musk, like when he takes over Twitter, if he takes over Twitter still to be determined, it's like, when does it become misinformation versus just um, the freedom of speech? And how do you then 
determine what's truth and what's accurate on a more wide scale level. And Elon has actually started talking about, oh, you know, if you're a corporation, his big thing is that there should be a subscription-based service. So, you know, hmm. if you wanted to put something out at the Harris Poll, you wanted to put something out, your product launch at Pepsi, even I'm sure Trump, he would have to pay a subscription fee to do that. So in a model like that, I think there would, should also be things like accuracy checkers and fact checkers the same way there are for the New York Times or any other kind of big media publication. Like if there's... If there's um, this, you know, this premiumness being put on that platform to monetize it, and there should be new kind of guardrails and to fact check it as well. Uh, absolutely, I think it's an excellent point. And then, you know, Abby, please jump in too. But what do you guys think specifically about the branding aspect of, of this? And I'll, I'll give you a couple data points quickly. Um, one is that um, if Trump's account were to be reinstated, this is stated, not behavioral, but um, Twitter users, we actually did, did this poll now specifically among those who are, are on the platform. The Twitter user demographics, according to our data, will likely shift. Um, Republicans at 45%, millennials at 42%, and men at 35% say that they are more likely to use Twitter if Trump's account is reinstated. And yet, on the other hand, 51% of Democrats and 36% of, of Xers and Boomers said they're less likely to use it. You're really looking at, again, sort of dividing over politics, right? Yeah, or even like safe spaces. I mean, I know personally, when I'm on Twitter, I get trolled more than ever. I mean, it's yeah. it's unbelievable. I can post something on LinkedIn and get a pretty good conversation going. I post the same thing on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure it's mostly bots that are trolling me, but I get a lot of trolling for no reason. And so I think, I think that in some respects that reinstating Trump or like opening it up and, and having a disre you know, disregarding kind of the idea of, of what he stands for, the misinformation that he can, that he has stood for, just says to another group of people that, hey, this is not really a space for you or, you know, you're you're not part of that. I mean, right now, the idea that there's not freedom of speech on Twitter, I think, is is kind of a false narrative. Like you can do there's so many things that you can say on Twitter that don't get banned. So um, I, I think it's just saying like, hey, we don't we don't regard the rest of the people who care about um, information or, or trolling or all that other kind of stuff. So I, I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting future of what that looks like. And, and lastly, for you guys, what do you think of Twitter's favorabilities? Uh, I put these into the show notes, but I'll read them briefly. This is pretty remarkable. So this is our uh, April Harvard Harris poll data of favorable versus unfavorable. And Twitter's favorable are at 34% it's unfavorable at 45%. And what's striking is that those numbers are slightly better, but not too much better than uh, China, Antifa, and Russia. So they are like down near sort of the most mistrusted American sort of um, institutions or, or companies. I mean, do you see uh, any path forward for, for this decision to sort of improve or is it gonna just continue to further um, sort of suppress Twitter's favorability. 
Um, it's hard because it's it's um, it's polarized in that way. I think depending on where things go, it there might be a lot of favorability that really swings to uh, Republican millennial men who who are really loving the the channel and the things that Twitter gives them. Um, but it might swing in an opposite way um, with with the groups that we talked about. So I don't know if there's going to be massive swings. I do have the hunch that this this deal with Elon Musk is going to fall through. It just seems like there's yeah. everything that. So so I'm actually very interested in how does Twitter as a brand reposition themselves from this fallout. And then what does favorability look like from that? Because I don't think they'll have this. Like we know that CEOs are their own brands. Um, so it's like, who's the CEO that's going to be reinstated or um, to, you know, take over at Twitter to really create a brand for itself? Because I think Elon coming in, almost buying it and not buying it, has left the brand kind of murky you know, if he exits it. So I'm curious to see what that positioning looks like kind of moving forward. We'll continue to watch this space. No, I completely agree with you. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the new future of ambition study. I'm really excited to hear what you guys have found. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the net net right. So we've um, we've covered this research. I think was it last week, John, where we said you know institutionally leaders, business leaders are saying you know generational shifts are their number one priority of figuring out their business um, that will impact their business operations. Um, so will supply chains and geopolitical lenses, but those generational shifts just sit at that top. So we were trying to figure out, well, well what does that really mean? Like, what does the future look like um, with these generational shifts? Everyone knows there's this great reassessment happening, great resignation, but why is that happening and what does that look like? So we looked into that and we wanted to see what is the new lens in which Americans are looking at ambition. And so we'll go over three shifts. But the first one primarily is that there is this new era of ambition happening and Americans really aren't lazy. Um, they're, they're not redesigning their whole life for nothing. You know, they're intentionally rebuilding their lives around what we're calling ROL. So that's return on lifestyle versus ROI, return on investment. People have fundamentally shifted and said, you know, I've woken up to these false promises. We see that 70% um, of millennials say I've been sold false promises around what will create happiness in my life. So they're like, hey, you know, when we talk to people, they said my ladder's up the wrong building over here. I really need to re be repositioning this. 68% um, said of millennials, particularly, this is really impacting millennials in a big way because they're at this crucial point where they're kind of redefining um, their lives hmm. in mid-career, which I think is really important because, you know, they're getting to senior executive positions. They're really imagining what things look like for them. So 68% of millennials said the pandemic helped me realize that the goals um, that I had for my lives were not the ones that would actually make me happy. So again, this kind of big reawakening. Um, and then almost seven in 10 millennials and 65% of Gen Z were actively seeking alternative lifestyles to create a happier life that they imagined pre-pandemic. So, you know, what does that mean? That means like the idea of 
being a hybrid worker, of being a kind of nomadic lifestyles, of just choosing alternative paths is something that we really imagine will stick around. It's a lens at to which look at to to look at the future consumer with. Um, we we were this re, uh, research was reported in exclusively in um, Fortune, and and the journalists asked like, well, won't we just shift back? And our fundamental opinion on that, when you look at the data, you look you talk to people. It's been so long that we've been living this way that this is just a fundamental reshift of ambition. And there's a couple of big indicators with this shift that we are shifting away from, and John, I know you and I worked on even advertising campaigns around this like a decade ago, but <laughs> we're shifting away from hustle culture. Like no one wants to be grinding anymore. Everyone, you know, the the new culture is flow. We're shifting away from work identity, even asking people what they do for work is kind of getting mocked at this point. It's like, what do you do for joy and passion is kind of getting replaced with that. And we're shifting away from hmm. these like and extrinsic desires and scoreboards. So, you know, beating the competition, knowing where you stand into a more intrinsic and long-term journey-based focus. So we just spent so much time hmm. internally gazing at ourselves that there's just a shift in a reorientation around how that actually drives fulfillment. Um, so that, that was really exciting. Um, and we really like this quote that one of the um, salon participants that we were talking to said, where he said, um, I'm rewiring myself around what makes me ecstatic. That's my PO, which is a project <laughs> management term for like top priority. Uh, Abby, do you wanna talk about the other two shifts? Yeah, so I think this this reorientation of ambition is kind of foundational to some of the other shifts that we saw. One thing that was really interesting is that we saw a move from this idea of uh, money, compensation, salary as the top currency toward actually more energy and time management. So two thirds of Americans told us that they are optimizing their energy and time versus optimizing their money and income spending, et cetera. So they're more focused on quality there. 75% um, want to learn how to be more present in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, we also saw some things that are sort of rising in importance um, around setting boundaries, finding time to restore your energy, seeking things outside of work that give life meaning, while things like attaching your personal identity to work, asking people what they do for a living when you first meet them uh, are no longer in vogue. So there's a real attachment to quality of life, how you're spending your time over perhaps that hustle culture that has so previously governed our lives. And then thirdly, we see a move towards uh, life in beta is what we're calling this trend, uh, a real <laughs> agility around change that has become the norm. Um, so we see that 60% um, of Americans are interested in living their life in beta mode where they can experiment with new careers, passions, locations, and more. This was particularly true among Latinx and Black Americans. Uh, this idea that we've gotten so used to adapting to change that we're actually embracing it and harnessing it for our own purposes really came to life in both the quantitative and qualitative research that we did. 67% um, of Americans told us they are more open to change than they were before the pandemic. 
Uh, and 61% also agree that they are more comfortable now living in the moments of uncertainty than they were before the pandemic. So this idea that we're more comfortable in the uncertainty, in the in-between moments, um, and also that success today is more determined by your ability to be agile, to adapt, to learn new skills than to perhaps become a deep expert in a skill set that you kind of plan to take through your whole life without evolving it. And I think fundamentally- fascinating. Oh, so yeah. yeah, I think one of the, the the ultimate shifts that we saw from it was this this idea that optimism is shifting overall as people are becoming more open to change and less grounded in hustle culture. Um, we see that optimism is fundamentally more grounded in realism. Um, 76% agree that optimism today is more about being realistic than idealistic. Um, it's driven by personal responsibility. Uh, they believe, Americans believe individuals will be the ones that drive change, not Twitter, not companies, not activists <laughs> for the government. Um, and then we also see this recalibration of brand values, which I think is really interesting towards things that might have been more traditional, right? Integrity, quality, fairness are outpacing things like innovation, creativity, some of those flashy values. Which I think that I, that to me is so fascinating, John, because I mean, right. we spent at least a, over a decade talking about, you know, how do you become more innovative as a company? How do you become more creative? Those, those have been the leading values forever. So to get fairness, especially in integrity, those two values at the core of co consumers' top brand values that they want to see from brands, to me, just means like, it's not that innovation goes away. It's just that the innovation at the core of it has to be designed for fairness, for integrity. Like this is what people really want, you know, in a, in a system where we're losing trust in a system where we feel like there's not equity in society and the systems that we run by, like we, every brand, every company needs to be thinking about how do they add more fairness? How, how do they add more integrity to their brand, um, to the brand experience, services, et cetera. So that was that was kind of a, a huge one as well um, that kind of came out in this report. You guys, this is so fascinating. And, and I really glommed on to, to Abby, that last point about these brand values um, that you were both talking about, you know, integrity, quality, and fairness. And, you know, it just got me thinking about the Milken Harris listening project data that we uh, presented two weeks ago, Libby. And, you know, there, yeah. there was this desire for leadership values. And one of the top leadership values that we learned was that um, honesty was favored over any other leadership trait of what makes an ideal modern leader by almost twofold. It was the just overwhelming, most imp important thing. And there was so much of that data that we could cross with this. But I wonder for you guys, like, how does, like, to me, this suggests that brands are going to have to really recalibrate around ethics. They're going to have to find a way to really be authentic, not simply, you know, innovative or, or flashy. But I mean, what would you do if you're a brand manager looking at, at this data? How would you think about your brand differently? Yeah, I mean, I, a couple of things. So I would make sure that you're not signaling anything that, that like, you know, really look at all your communications, your lifestyles, your aspirations, make sure you're not signaling anything that ties to the life cycle of burnout culture. So stop propagating that narrative and start thinking about like, hmm. how do you, how do you um, support 
service, create experiences that bring energy back to people and also keep like get rid of the mindset. I think what's something that's has shifted during the pandemic is this mindset of like, we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and instead, mm. so that, that idea of we're independence, it's, it's killing us kind of as a country, it's creating a lot of um, issues, but it's the in, inner dependence, right? It's the idea that we like come together and we rely on each other and that makes us stronger. Um, and that, even though, you know, Abby said like, where people believe change is going to come from is people as individuals. The idea behind that and, and kind of the conversations we had behind that is because people are more skeptical, especially younger people are more skeptical that the systems will change overnight, but they are seeing the change in the people that they know and the, the communities that they are part of. And so really that in, interdependence and cultivating community becomes a big role of, of brands kind of building off this um, ambition mindset moving forward. And then the third thing I would say is make sure the optimism isn't pie in the sky. Um, make sure optimism is grounded in actual real actions and a sense of urgency around that. Um, typically our export in America has always been this like really pie in the sky optimism. So it's easy to kind of, you know, have this, these great visions of what that looks like, but also people are very interested in having, um, kind of tactical viewpoints of what is an optimistic small step today and how does that drive change tomorrow? Not just what the change is tomorrow. Just great research, guys. Super, super interesting. And this will be up on the Harris Poll website? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's up on the Harris Poll website. Uh, you can also DM e either of us on LinkedIn. We can send you the report. Um, just lots of stuff to go through. And happy, if anyone's interested to, you know, and they need a cut of a certain kind of data, we're happy to, to do that and, and walk you through it as well. You guys are crushing it. This is really interesting stuff. And I can see how this has got long range implications on branding and also corporate rep. But maybe Libby could finish off in our last five minutes just connecting this thread to our last uh, survey because this doesn't just apply to young people, millennials and Gen Z. It's actually applying to those that are, are thinking about retirement. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's what's kind of interesting about this. Like, so pre hustle culture and burnout culture that we were in that the idea of that is you work yourself to death so you can retire which is why there was like a a rise of early retire yeah the fire movement yeah. retire early like get out of the rat race as fast as you can now if you start to shift your perspective and you say well it's not really a rat race it's um, a journey that I can sustain for a long time and I'm purposely looking out for fulfilling work. We've started to see this trend not only happen with Gen Zers and millennials, but actually boomers and Gen Xers who are saying, hey, I don't necessarily want to exit the workforce. I actually want to consider and think about retirement differently. So that's a recent study that was done with Edward Jones um, about, you know, boomers really rethinking retirement. And we saw, um, I don't know, John, if you want to go through the stats or you want me to go through some or. Yeah, no, I, I can throw a couple in there, but yeah. I thought what was so interesting in this Harris Edward Jones, um, age wave Libby and Abby is that a quarter of these pre-retirees. And so this definition are sort of folks in, um, 
in their sort of um, boomers sort of moving in, into seniors, but, but folks that are just on the cusp within five years of retirement. So it's sort of in front of them and they're thinking about it. 27% of them uh, view retirement uh, similarly to their parents' version of rest and relaxation. That's only a quarter, right? So yep. said the other way, you've got three quarters that are, that are saying what, what you're describing, um, Libby, which is that basically retirement is a new chapter in life and sort of connecting that last story. It's about, about that flow, about finding, as you said, more fulfilling work, about being open um, to sort of new chapters and how things would sort of come to you. Because we saw that in the data, I mean, 34% of these pre-retirees um, said this new chapter would um, likely start after they stop working full-time. Um, but it was also interesting is that they're starting to initiate that now. I mean, it wasn't sort of a turn off the switch and um, now I'm gonna go and get in a rocking chair. It was really about sort of thinking and working in a different way. And so what we found is three in five um, that we surveyed said that retirement might even include working in some capacity, whether that's part-time, cycling between work and leisure, or you know, for some even sticking uh, with full-time employment. And it was interesting, one of our, um, our, our sponsors and our partners on this survey, uh, the psychologist, um, Ken Dykewald, and he's the founder and chief executive of AgeWave. He suggested that what we have to do is actually remove this belief that everyone should stop working at 65 for three reasons. Number one, we can't afford to. Um, number two, a bit of good work is good for us. Um, and three, work keeps us modern and, and socially connected to people of all ages. So I just thought that was encouraging yeah. to see that. Um, don't you think, Libby, like it feels like retirement now is, is a new side hustle? Yeah, well, it, I mean, the thing is, like, if work starts to get out of that construct that, like, we are working ourselves to death, you know, and like, just trying to get as much as we can in before we retire, and it becomes more fulfilling and sustainable because we're maybe doing a little bit less but doing it longer then it really changes your definition of how work intersects with your life and how you become fulfilled by that so i really love that idea i also there's just a piece of research that came out that said people are going to live to 150 now um so like oh, if you if we're living to 150 like we need to be working right and we need to be contributing to the society and feeling a part of that so um you know i i that's exciting, right, John? I think we're all going to live to 150. And so, you know, you'll be hearing a lot from us in the next 50 years. <laughs> God forbid. Uh, <laughs> no, you guys, this is a great, a great new survey. And we'll, um, I've got Jack Cooney on our executive producer. She will uh, put the presentation also into the show notes and uh, also make sure it's up on the Harris Poll website. But Libby and Abby, thank you guys so much. Um, a quick show note is always the America This Week um, uh, podcast is here every Friday at 10 for a half hour. And we also greatly encourage you guys to um, DM us and give us poll ideas, things that you might want us to put into field. And we'd love for you guys to uh, come on and join us too, and sort of maybe talk about some of the data in our future show. So that sounds awesome. Also, lastly, we're releasing a new Harvard Harris poll today, uh, this afternoon, that'll look at voter sentiment on the economy, on POTUS ratings, et cetera. So we'll have that uh, data for you guys uh, early next week. Should be a good one. <laughs> awesome. Abby, thanks. thanks for joining us. 
Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, everybody. All right. You too, guys. See you as always. Bye. Have a great weekend.